You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. Today, we are going to tackle a topic that I have been wanting to describe for some time because it's close to my heart in a way, which is to say I'm really passionate about education, in case that hasn't come through. (laughs) Never would have guessed that. In our discussions. (laughs) And I've had an interest in this idea. And so what we're talking about today is Montessori schools. Shane, do you have history with Montessori schools? No, I have some friends that were Montessori school teachers, like they worked in that space, but I personally don't have any. You'll see this as a theme later. My family couldn't afford to go to something like that. (laughs) Gotcha. And correct me if I'm wrong, your work has included a lot of things like working in schools and with teachers and that sort of thing and paraprofessionals. Is that correct? I mean, not a ton of it, but some of my work has involved working in school settings, in classrooms, in very individualized settings, and mostly with the kids that were too dangerous to be in a general, like a general ed classroom. And so kind of keeping them safe in a different space. So that's a lot of kind of the bent that we took was from a crisis management standpoint, not necessarily from like an individualized education standpoint. Right. And there is some of that intended to be built into the model, into the Montessori model. But did your work ever take you into a Montessori school? No, I know that there are some analysts that have done that, but I personally have not had the opportunity to. But that's just an issue of the learners that I work with, which are usually a little bit older. They're usually adults, usually a little bit more dangerous. But I know that it's accessible for some analysts that are out there. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So I don't have a story I want to preface this with. Instead, I'd actually like to come back to that story. So let's jump into what we're going to talk about here and what we're going to specifically set out to answer some questions about Montessori schools, which it's entirely possible you out there listening in podcast land in your car, maybe (laughs) (laughs) that you have never heard of Montessori schools or that word, or at least you're not sure what it is. So we're going to try and answer what is Montessori and we'll go over the history of it. What are the fundamental features of a Montessori school model and sort of the, I guess the benefits and the drawbacks of this particular model. Just so that everybody kind of understands this too. Like I I'm walking into this without like a huge opinion one way or another. I don't really spend enough time with it to kind of have that really intense opinion compared to like, let's say sensory integration. So, you know, I, I'm going to be walking in this and kind of like, like navigating this with you all as we go through. And by the way, we have been publishing some videos around some of the topics that we've been publishing episodes on. So you can find those on YouTube if you just look up us or the topic. And I think they're under the channel, the daily BA. But there are videos about some of these topics. You get to see me talking with Ryan for the most part and just giving a little summary of those. So I don't know, something, something else to check out if you're interested in a little bit more about these topics. I mean, a very little bit. They're mostly short. I think the longest one is 10 minutes. So yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's awesome that you're coming into this sort of blind. I think that'll be really cool to see how your interpretation of this evolves as the discussion goes on. So another thing that we also want to tackle or question we want to answer in understanding how this model really works, which is to say, what are the ingredients of this being successful or not? And so when it's successful, why? And if it's not successful, why not? Yeah, exactly. So this is a big primer. A lot of people say primer. This is a big introduction to Montessori schooling. And I mean, I feel like we go fairly in depth for what for what we're going to be discussing. There's, of course, always going to be more to learn than what we're able to cover in an 
hour episode or even a couple of discussions, but um, I think we we got a pretty good deep dive. And before we go any further, we'll go ahead and thank the primary researcher for this was Alan Kinsella. Yes. Again, newish member of our team. Did a great job with the notes here. And so thanks, Alan, for helping us put all this together and all the work you did on this. Yeah, these notes are fantastic. We're really excited to dig into this. Great. All right. So do you want to start this off, Shane? Yeah. So a little bit of background of the Montessori school. It was originally kind of created by this woman named Maria Montessori, and she lived from 1870 to 1952. So she saw a whole lot of human history in that time. She was an Italian physician and an educator, and she opened the first classroom in 1907 based on her work on observations of children and experimentation with environment, materials, and lessons. So what you'll see here is she's been observing children. She's kind of taken some notes, and she's designed this classroom around what she's seen with kids. Right. And so she described the work that she did here in the classroom as this, quote unquote, scientific pedagogy. And for those who are unfamiliar with the term, pedagogy simply refers to the essentially materials and methods of delivering instruction and doing so in sort of a presumably an impactful way. Yeah. You can find a ton of research on the topic of pedagogy, especially like within the education and instruction literature. So it's, it's pretty interesting when you start digging into that. And so finally, uh, just uh, finishing up the background here on Maria is that we discovered, interestingly, she was actually nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize on three different occasions in 1949, 1950 and 1951, just before her death in 1952. So kind of cool. And these were for her work in promoting sort of peace through her model. Is that correct? Yeah, like working and advocating for peace among human beings. So pretty cool. She never officially received one, but there are people that kind of argue that she should have received one considering the work that she did and the impact that it had at the time. So kind of going into a little bit about the history of this, the perspective and kind of the overview of this Montessori model is that the child is, quote, naturally eager for knowledge and capable of initiating learning in a supportive, thoughtfully prepared learning environment, end quote. So the main tenet here is that children are naturally curious and you're going to basically provide an environment that's going to allow them to kind of explore that curiosity. And so you might immediately begin to latch on to the fact that essentially this idea is related to the concept of nature versus nurture or nature and nurture together, right? But the idea of this nature and nurture and that this parallels sort of one half of the idea and maybe goes more toward the blank slate approach, although it does imply, obviously, that there's this inherent curiosity, inherent interest in learning in these kids. So that's a part of this theory behind this, I suppose. Yeah. Within that, too, kind of thinking about that basic tenant, you can make the argument that the entire world is a pretty unique learning environment, but situations can be contrived and manipulated by caregivers and educators to actually strengthen or improve certain skills more rapidly. So rather than looking at the entire world, the entire globe as this very specific learning environment, these classrooms are set up to kind of foster very specific skills in these early learners. I do feel like this becomes a bit ironic as we get into this, but let's then start with the basic principles underlying the idea of the Montessori model here. And there's two sort of main components. First is that children and developing adults engage in this idea of, quote, psychological self-construction by means of interaction with their environment. So that's the first tenet here is that their movement through their environment allows them to build their identity and their sort of psychology of who they're going to be. 
Yeah, and that leads into the second principle, which is children, and especially children under six, have an innate path of psychological development. So basically having the liberty to act and choose freely within a prepared environment would foster optimal development. So that's kind of what they're looking at here is like if they can kind of choose what they want, then that's going to be the best option for their ongoing development long term. And so, again, you can immediately see this relation to the idea of nature and nurture. And one thing that becomes apparent here in both of these principles is that there is, we'll see this theme sort of going throughout, but there is this idea that the source of learning comes at least in part from the internal motivation of the individual and not necessarily always from the environment. So the environment provides the structured place by which they get to find themselves, but their engagement with their environment comes from their internal motivation is how I read those principles. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Don't buy it, but it, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> so kind of given that that's a general kind of framework in which the Montessori schools are working in, it's important to kind of understand to the idea of what education theory looks like, because there is an entire, I mean, we could probably create an entire podcast and do an entire, there's, I mean, there's textbooks, there's classes and all this stuff on just education theory and how to improve education and instruction and all that. I mean, I minored in curriculum design. So within that, I mean, that was a minor within my doctorate. And it was the same type of thing. It's like, it's only four classes, but it's literally scratching the surface. So let's take a little bit of time to talk about this. Yeah. I personally would enjoy a podcast of that nature, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll get, yeah. We'll jump into I'm this. into yeah. it. Yeah. I like, tell me, tell me how to make a class better. I'm all about it. All right. So one thing that's important to understand is how we go about measuring whether someone's learning and understanding sort of the tendencies that you see in someone who is exploring their environment and developing the psychology of who they are based on the, the theory of this model. So here's the, I would rather call this a hypothesis because I think that's more accurate. The, the working hypothesis here is that people have these tendencies, these human tendencies. This is what it means to be human. And these tendencies include things like we engage in abstraction, activity, communication, exactness, exploration, we manipulate our environments, we look for order, orientation, repetition, self-perfection, and then work that is at least interpreted by us as being purposeful. And the idea here is that these tendencies that we have drive our behavior in each stage of development and that the educational environment then needs to capitalize on that drive by responding appropriately to the expression of those tendencies that we have. Again, I want to make sure we're stating clearly, this is the position of the Montessori sort of theory or hypothesis of education, not the position at all that we would take on this topic. Yes, we are merely describing the phenomenon. <laughs> so to kind of further expound upon that, environment should help develop independence in human characteristics, age characteristics, and individual personalities of each child. So what this means is that the Montessori environment should facilitate movement and activity, beauty and harmony through cleanliness, which I was like, huh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's cleanliness is a cool skill. I'm good with <laughs> yeah. that, especially in today's environment. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Everybody should, should have been washing their hands for 20 seconds anyway. It shouldn't have taken the coronavirus to tell us that. Construction in proportion to the child and their needs. Limitation of materials, only the type that support development. So that's kind of a funny thing when they're like, the environment and the world is your oyster to learn in. Except for we're going to contrive this and you have this limited material. Right. 
Again, going kind of into the Montessori environment, you've got order, nature in and outside of the classroom. So you're introducing natural environment stuff within there. I mean, I would love to even do an episode on environmental psychology at some point in time, because that's kind of, that seems to lend itself to that a little bit. Yeah, that's actually, that's a great point. And in, I agree. I think I like that suggestion. I think I have maybe written that down somewhere on like a piece of paper as we, maybe we should do this as a topic <laughs> sometime, but now one thing I would like to point out, and you described all of these features of an environment, of this educational environment, according to the Montessori model. And one of the tricky things in education more broadly is how to clearly define your independent variable so that you can evaluate your parameters and your outcomes and understand that what you did is the relevant factor that resulted in that outcome, right? And what has often been the case is because the this model is going to be I mean, holistic is not really the word I'm looking for here, but this it has so many different elements of, of how to construct this, and it, this is not actually a clear prescription. It just says things like, the environment should have beauty and harmony. And things like that mean that those factors become subjective to the classroom teacher, whoever is sort of in charge of developing this. And these they don't have any objective standards. They don't have any clear parameters. I mean, there probably are things that are as clear as don't abuse child. And that's great. We want those sort of rules to be in place. And it was even in something that says don't abuse child and us thinking, yeah, that's really cool. Let's make sure we have that as a rule. We actually need to define what abuse means. And we talk about things like limitation of materials, facilitation of movement, construction in proportion to what the child needs that becomes super subjective and we don't know exactly what that implies. And so we couldn't know what the independent variable is in this because it just sort of says do good stuff and good stuff will happen. Yeah. And I'm being a little facetious and tongue in cheek here, but just saying that like, there's not enough clear description of this for someone to really take this, implement it and know that they're implementing the model with integrity with respect to how it was originally designed to be implemented, right? Yeah. So we'll actually go more into the practice here in a moment. Let's dig into the history a little bit more. Yeah. So as far as the Montessori model goes, the first book on the subject was published in 1909 and became a bestseller in over 10 languages. Apparently, there's some social significance to this. People were really interested in this thing that, that was coming up. So when the book was published, it spread from Italy and beyond, hitting the U.S. within its first school in 1911 in Scarborough, New York. So Montessori didn't even hit the United States until the 1910s. So, I mean, that was 110 years ago, which is crazy to think about. But that's when it first got here. Yes. And I've been resisting the urge to say Montessori because it's from Italy. <laughs> <laughs> right. We've been, we've been holding our hands. Yeah. You can't see us, but we're doing very much the Godfather Maria Montessori. <laughs> By the 1920s, Maria focused more on adolescence, believing in experience, interdependence in societal frameworks, such as framing and marketing. And this highlighted an education for peace and social justice, heavily influenced by, of course, the effects of the two world wars at that point. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in then to, as we just described, some of what the critical elements are or the essential elements of what you might see in a Montessori model. And I think we can sort of comment as we go the kind of things that we might also agree with. And the very first one here is a mixed age classroom for three year intervals between zero and 18 years old. This is actually something I could see there being some value in intrinsically. Now, I, I do understand why kids tend to be grouped by their ages and be very, very close. 
And it actually can be a lot more effective for instruction to have them grouped by their level of skill. And so if that was what was going on here, then the age wouldn't necessarily be a factor in determining what their placement is. It would just be what they're capable of doing and where they're going to benefit most from the type of instruction that's available in a particular classroom. This doesn't say that we're grouping them by skill, just that there are mixed ages. So there's a piece of it and maybe not the whole thing. Yeah, I agree with that that sentiment for sure. So another element too is student choice of activities within a prescribed range of options. So there are maybe several choices that are available and students can choose within that. So I'm good with choice. Choice is cool. But the problem that we find here is how do we end up determining some kind of universal standard for what those options should be? And does a set of activities differ from traditional schools? Like how different is that? What does that look like? And why does that become kind of a crucial element of the Montessori school and not what's already in the education system? In addition, you have these uninterrupted blocks of work time, if you will, ideally about three hours. Now, of course, there is some consideration in here in terms of whether or not kids can tolerate three hours. I mean, 20 minutes can feel like an eternity to a child, you know, especially young, probably one minute can. And three hours can be a really long time. So there's not a clear description in terms of how do you build up to that amount of time in sort of this work environment. And I actually think that that might be answered by understanding exactly what the work is, which is to say, because the student sort of chooses their activity, it's possible that this work environment looks like do whatever you want environment. And then three hours becomes fairly easy because it's just playtime. Right. This next point kind of leads into that too. Is students learn in a constructivist or discovery model where they learn through experience with materials rather than via direct instruction. So the teacher's not lecturing. What they're doing is they're kind of contacting whatever those learning materials are and manipulating them and, and kind of learning through the discovery of that. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. He says something along the lines of adults tend to punish the scientists out of younger kids and learners by accident. Like if a kid spills a glass of milk, you know, maybe part of that experience would be watching the milk run off the table and kind of watch it flow through the cracks or the creases in the counter. And parents and adults are like, no, 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 we got to clean this up. We got to clean this up and kind of like punish that out real quick. So I could understand kind of like the learner's experience with something new and novel. That might be a cool thing within that learning experience. Right. So it's important to note here that unless the child the student will say, chooses to do something like, hey, teach me how to do multiplication and and division, which could happen, seems unlikely, but it might. That's unlikely for a lot of really specific teaching to happen in those moments. Now, it's not to say a teacher might try and capitalize on their interest in something and say, oh, you know how we could learn how to solve this problem you're experiencing is by using math. Let me show you how this formula works, that sort of thing. And maybe they would do a really good job of that. And those are not specifically programmed activities. So it's entirely possible that you will see kids who they just don't develop a lot of strong math and reading skills, especially early on in a model like this, because they are doing a lot more of the explore discovery thing and reading and math are hard and playing and exploring is easy. And so those are the things that they tend to spend their time doing more of, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. 
So another key element of this is this idea of specialized educational materials. And some of them are developed by Montessori and colleagues. I'm sure that kind of with the flexibility of this, that maybe some of the teachers can do this too. And it's made out of natural aesthetic materials, such as wood instead of plastic, kind of just keeping it, keeping it simple is what they're looking at here. Right. So essentially that this environment should be thoughtfully prepared where the materials are organized as much as possible by subject area within the reach of the child so that they can easily access it and that they are the appropriate size to be manipulated and useful and probably not dangerous. And so that there is supposed to be some intentional structure and purpose built to how these are set up to try and facilitate their moving through that process. Another part, too, is this idea of freedom within limits. And immediately when I read that, I uh, thought of Braveheart. You'll never take my freedom within limits. <laughs> and so essentially what that's trying to say is like the students or the learners have the ability to kind of choose within the in the context. And, and maybe there are certain limits. Maybe it's that the student can't just choose to play on a computer for the three-hour work block, but they are contacting that prescribed instruction from before. So that's part of the freedom within that. They can do this, this, or this, and they have the freedom to kind of contact the material, but it's still within a certain limit. And so with, yeah, with the freedom of the environment as it's structured to be, then the Montessori teacher should follow the student around and if this is an experienced, well-trained, and probably intuitive person, then they're going to be specifically observing that child's tendencies, their characteristics, any talent that they display right out the gate, and try and capitalize on those moments. Now, there isn't a very clear formula for how to do this. There's not really necessarily a checklist or things to organize around to say, this is what this, per this child is doing, therefore we should foster this skill. It seems to be, based on what we were able to find here, that really they just follow them around and you might see some teachers who are good at noticing the kinds of things that they can really build instruction around, but you can't really guarantee that teachers are going to do this in a comparable way. It's very possible that you'll have two teachers who are pretty good at what they do and they would actually come to opposite ideas about what that kid is capable of doing and what they're inherently interested in because they're interpreting their behaviors a little bit differently from one another because there's not really a clear code of how to do this. As I say, you see this in like highly standardized classrooms, like instructors tend to be right fairly different within given very structured material. So it just lends itself to the idea that like, if there's more freedom, there's going to be that more flexibility within that. And so the teachers are going to do a little bit, a little bit different stuff. So, I mean, this, this, as you're starting to look at this too, I have questions about like how this is how progress is assessed because there's if it's kind of like there is that freedom and there is that that flexibility like is there a way that these the teachers can do this without it being just qualitative information or like anecdotal is there some kind of standardized test or something some kind of comparison that they can look at within that school setting yeah i mean one of the things that i think many if not most of our listeners are would respond to pretty quickly in here is the importance of data and when you are trying to learn anything about someone, and especially when you're trying to help someone, you need to have some way of measuring and producing data so that you can make decisions about how your intervention is going. And so if you're not collecting data or if you have no way of monitoring progress, it becomes really difficult to make any claims whatsoever about how someone is doing. And there are quantitative ways of doing this. And I understand like there can be really important qualitative features of describing a student's performance and say like, 
the student read slower than they've been reading, but they also read with the correct inflection. And inflection is really difficult to measure. You know, we can say, did their voice go up when it was a question? Did they go down when it was a period? Did they change their voice with people with characters? And those become sort of subjective yes-no scales. Maybe they changed it, but not very much. Maybe they paused, but not long enough. Maybe they implied inflection, but you sort of knew what you were looking for. So it was kind of really just your interpretation of their tone and not their understanding of the material. And that becomes really difficult to measure. But there are also clear quantitative things to measure. How many words did they read correctly? How many errors did they make? How many math problems did they solve correctly? How many errors did they make? What kind of errors did they make? Those are things that you can take clear data on. And it seems like there is generally a, and I don't mean just the sound like I'm being glib or rude here, but the model here does not emphasize a lot of data collection or interpretation to make decisions about academic progress. I get the same vibe. So you know, as we start kind of looking at this too, I think it's important. We're talking about this schooling or this type of model on a global scale. So let's look at what Montessori looks like within the United States. So in the United States, what you'll see here is that the Montessori type of school or the Montessori model tended to attract a more affluent demographic, including the support from Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell. And everything that I've read about Thomas Edison is that he's not a nice fellow. Yikes. You tend to like Nikolai Tesla a little bit more. Okay. <laughs> in their war. Yeah. The prestige. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that what I'm thinking of? Was that the one? There was electricity in that, yes. Okay. I was trying to remember which, if that was the movie. The popularity did decrease fairly quickly in the United States. So it sort of was introduced, blew up bright for a second, and then sort of decreased. There were some language barriers. There was limitations around travel with respect to the war. There was certainly has always been some anti-immigration sentiment in the United States. And also, a lot of educators didn't necessarily feel very strongly about this model, especially compared to sort of the traditional way of schooling, which I'd argue wasn't necessarily better most of the time. Sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't, but they were definitely skeptical of this different model. Yeah, and William Kilpatrick who was a revered progressive education figure at the time, had published a negative assessment of Montessori's method and specifically some components within it. So that didn't go well for the Montessori model or kind of the expansion of that model within the United States. Now, without doing a deep dive on the entire history of education and how things tended to occur, suffice it to say that as we got more and more structured about actually developing curriculum, measuring outcomes, reporting progress, and having standards in academics, the look of education began to look gloomier and gloomier. And in the 1950s, the culture around education really had shifted to a general discontentment with traditional American education. And this was also leading to some of the rioting and uproars and general punk of the 1960s. <laughs> yeah. Which I yeah. love. And there was a New York City teacher who found these practices again in Paris. So she was further in her knowledge there and brought the focus of this Montessori model back to the United States in New York City. And so you began to see this reemergence of this model of the American Montessori school in the beginning of the 1960s. And so that brings us to kind of what Montessori looks like today in the United States. Currently, there are over 5,000 schools within the U.S. and 1 million children that are contacting or have contacted the Montessori model within that infancy to adolescence age range. Additionally, you'll see some bilingual components, immersive language components. There's some 
faith-based versions of this. And there are a few people who actually contacted Montessori programs that are famous people like Steph Curry, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, who were the Google founders, Julia Child, Jeff Bezos. So there are a lot of people who have contacted this type of program and done pretty well for themselves. Yeah. And 5,000 means that there would be an average of 100 of these per state in the United States, right? And so just before you go thinking, well, I want my kid to be the next Jeff Bezos, notice that there are 5,000 of these and we just gave you like six people. Yeah. So the proportion of outcomes does not say if A, then B, just to make sure we're clear on the cause-effect relation here <laughs> or lack thereof. Also, we can't say for certain that the Montessori's program made Jeff Bezos evil. So like, we don't really know because he's not a great guy. And just lost any opportunity for backing from Amazon, I think. <laughs> Sorry. Didn't mean to do that. Didn't mean to do that. Sorry. Stick to my morals. Stick to my values. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> We're beholden to no one right now. <laughs> <laughs> Why we do what we do can't be bought, maybe. Yeah. No, we can be. <laughs> but Yeah, we can be. <laughs> but still stick to our stick to our guns there. Okay. So another way of talking about this is sort of planes of development, and this is just it's a basic stage model that has different characteristics and this also implies different learning modes and then imperatives that call for specific approaches across those different stages and the first one here is zero to six and this is described as the pivotal physical physiological stage of sensory exploration so you'll see this absorbent mind this is just sort of this is the brain as a sponge idea of like kids just soak up everything they're around very sensitive to things there's a lot of normalization, which is to say that, you know, starting to cre create essentially patterns and rules about how things work. And so you'll see kids that engage in concentration. This is a good time to practice discipline and that they'll be happier in their work. And then there are some some stages. All right. Yeah. So within the sub stages during this zero to six kind of plane of development, you're going to see varied acquisition of language. You're going to see some different interest in small objects. They're going to be looking more at order, sensory refinement, social behavior. So there are these different elements within the zero to six developmental stage that are pretty critical. And so that's a lot of where maybe you'll see that physical, physiological stage, that sensory exploration stuff kind of tie into this type of thing, too. So the next stage is going to be 6 to 12, and that's going to be a tendency to work in groups, use reason and imagination, intellectual independence, moral sense, social organization, and that's kind of what they talk about there. Now, I have a 14-year-old, and I'm going to say from the time that she was about like 10 or 11, the use of reason was not a thing. So she still struggles with that. But generally speaking you'll see the use of reason and imagination as part of this particular plane. Shane constantly throwing his daughter under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fine. She does it to me at school all the time, too. It works. That's our relationship these days. So the next stage in your teenage years, you have 12 to 18, and this is described as adolescence, where there is the construction of adult self in society, sort of as you're approaching adulthood, how you fit into the narrative of where you are in sort of the larger social context. Yeah, and then there's 18 to 24, and that's with full preparation, assimilation into civilization, complete with an understanding of work and money, perhaps continuing indefinitely. So you'll see kind of like this stage of development is like a continual process and beginning to move into that adulthood. Now, as an adult, I am 34. I don't know if I've hit these markers yet. <laughs> I was also going to make the comment that after age 24, apparently you never change. Yeah. Just stay exactly the way you are. Yep. Congratulations. That's it. As far as Montessori goes, thanks. <laughs> All right. So let's actually talk about how the sort of method of teaching, what that looks like, because we've alluded to this before, but let's really dig into it here. And so if you are a teacher in a Montessori classroom, 
you should have a relatively good grasp on sort of setting up specific, I guess, cues and contexts and antecedent situations by constantly observing the student. And so simply modeling the kind of behavior you want to see and then providing explanations for what you're doing and why can really help improve, according to the model, the behavior that you're looking for. And so this might be things like modeling and explaining appropriate social etiquette, manners, demonstrating appropriate behavioral responses to specific and variable situations that you might encounter, such as if someone takes something from you and things that just might come up. And so I actually want to pause really quick and talk about how this relates to how we know that one thing that we often bring up when we're teaching parents, when we're teaching teachers, when we're helping people to, I guess, guide student or their child's behavior is that modeling can be a really important thing. And if we see a child acting a particular way, we often assume immediately that there's some kind of model for that probably in their environment at home. And so there's not inherently a problem here to suggest that there is modeling. As a matter of fact, the sort of complete package that we often talk about that's probably worth a really deep dive at some point because there's so much research on it is essentially tell, show, do, and then provide feedback, right? That's a sort of the model of how we generally talk about when you're teaching somebody something, you know, describe how it's done, show them how it's done, allow them practice doing it, give them feedback on their practice. That's the core critical components for how we understand teaching sort of a new skill a lot of the time. And so this has show and then tell, not as a like classroom activity necessarily, <laughs> show and tell, but the show part of this equation here, model the thing that you want to see, and then the tell afterward, describe what is supposed to happen. And so you can see that like, if we were making cookies and we got eggs, flour, chocolate chips, and heat to make those cookies, Oh, and butter, actually. So we'll do eggs, flour, butter, and chocolate chips. You got the butter and the flour, or maybe like the flour and the chocolate chips. But there are more steps needed to finish making those cookies here. And so we've got a start of some things. But if you just have flour and chocolate chips, you're not going to enjoy your meal very much. No, that's going to be very dusty chocolate chips. Also, not a meal, but a snack. Yeah, and also a gr- gross one. Yeah, also not a very great snack. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the first part. You got this this modeling and explanations. You've also got transitions that are minimal because the student selects their own work. So we talked about that pre-programmed three-hour work block, right? And so uh, the transitions are limited because the student is selecting and choosing what they want to work on. And the program transitions are routine and expected. So they do program transitions within that, but they are minimal. Now, what you'll see here too, is they mentioned that the non-compliance is also fairly minimal as they select their own work. So they don't have this issue of kind of saying, oh, I don't want to do this. Like they may avoid certain things, but they don't necessarily outright maybe avoid like everything, right? So they do generally choose something within that. Um, And support is given for the child to learn self-control. So basically what they're saying is like, hey, you know, you're providing maybe prompts or some examples of like, hey, you should probably choose this one because you did this one yesterday or, or maybe you should choose this and kind of maybe they offer that a little bit. What if you do see some refusal to work and some non-compliance, Shane? So they do look for those reasons and they probably try to maybe analyze that a little bit. So some things that they'll look at, maybe some quote unquote reasons for non-compliance would be that maybe the material is too boring or it's too easy. Right. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe they're overstimulated. Maybe there's some emotional trigger or they have some kind of externalized home issues. So that feels very Freudian when I say that. 
some some externalized home issues with parents. I think we'll get into more, I think, as we go down along talking about this. But one thing about this model that we haven't really described in detail is with this teaching, whether or not there is a what encouragement looks like. Let's put it that way. Because if there is success, then that's likely to be celebrated in some capacity by the teacher. But the Montessori school actually seems to specifically avoid any points or rewards or anything like that for success. And there is often the case that when you don't have anything to work toward, then you won't work toward it. (laughs) You won't do the work, you know? And so there is some, a reward, rewards can be built into academic stuff by understanding it, being successful, getting things done and avoiding things that are unpleasant. So it's not to say that there are no rewards that are that the children are experiencing, but you might see this sort of non-compliance or failure to engage if there is no incentive whatsoever. And especially when you're learning something hard, it's really useful to really reward specific steps along the way because that is going to facilitate the process so much more. And so if there's a lack of that, then you might see that what looks like the non-compliance thing. And I mean, calling something overstimulation or like an emotional trigger or it's, you know, too boring or whatever, how would you ever make that determination really, you know? Right. You could ask them and they'll be able to say something, but it seems like it's not very prescriptive for what to do. And one thing we know works is to provide rewards and, you know, some kinds of external motivators that that can really help kickstart something where you need it to at least begin. Yeah. And kind of to your point about being emotionally triggered or anything like that, they do mention that if the child is emotionally triggered, they should suggest a preferred activity instead, maybe make that recommendation. And if the child chooses not to, then they get to spend time in what they call the peace corner. Now, I already see so many problems with this. (laughs) Yeah. We'll just go back to the basic model here of child does problematic thing. Child gets world of good things that happen to them. What if they learned in the situation? I was just watching a show or movie recently, and I don't remember which, where there was somebody who wanted something to happen and he didn't get it. And so what he did was he criticized the crap out of the person who was withholding this thing from him. And they said, like, if I give this to you, will you be nice to me? And he's like, yeah, that'd probably work. And so they gave in and gave it to him. And I, and I immediately was like, next time you withholding something or next time he wants something from you, what he now is going to do is criticize the crap out of you because that is what you just taught him. Yep. And so that is exactly the kind of problem with this kind of approach to this. Yeah. And who knows what the rates of this type of problem behavior are within that, because it doesn't sound like they're collecting that type of data, but it would be worth looking at and seeing like, Hey, you know, if this, is this beneficial for this child? Probably not because now it's just going to be, all kinds of avoidance. And just in case this is not clear in what we're saying, essentially what the, what will happen is if you were to see this and we're saying don't do this thing where you send them in the, their peace corner or whatever, the recommendation is instead to go back to these model of teach them the appropriate response to those situations and slowly build up their skill and whatever it is that they don't want to do. So if you're seeing that they are refusing to partake in some particular activity, then what you need to do is find out some kind of reward that they would be interested in 
and then have them be able to earn access to that reward by taking small steps toward engagement with that activity. So we're not just saying like they're dumb and there's nothing you can do. There is something you can do and it's be strategic and take data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So Montessori might be set up to, if someone's going to be successful in that model, it's probably going to be students who are what you might call neurotypically developing or just typically developing or just lack any kind of special needs or special services or special supports. And in those situations, those students, exposing them to novel conditions and these really engaging exploratory things, they have these independent skills that are challenged and they're tested and they get the problem solved and they're taught as needed. But what about those students for whom they do have those special needs or the students who are not in that mold of sort of what you might describe as being not neurotypically developing or otherwise need some additional supports. It's worth asking the question, how well does this work for those students? Okay, so let's actually save that question for next time. We have so much more we'd like to cover, and I'd like to make sure that we do it justice, that we don't feel like we're rushing, and also that this doesn't end up being a painfully long episode that you can't listen to because it takes you so long to get through everything. So we'll go ahead and pause here, and we'll pick it up next time. And before we do that, should we dive into some quick recommendations? Yes, let's do it. Recommendations. All right, Shane, you can go first this time because I feel like I usually go first. Oh, yeah, no worries. So my recommendation is Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. <laughs> awesome. So, Say more. <laughs> so I live in Central Florida. And I live down the road from Universal Studios and Islands of Adventure and all the crazy theme parks. Well, if you are a Harry Potter fan, then Islands of Adventure and Universal has their Harry Potter world that branches across both parks. It's amazing. It's amazing. If you're like even like a cursory Harry Potter fan, it is just nuts. So a little history. Before it was Harry Potter land, it was the Lost Continent in Islands of Adventure. And so they had this roller coaster called the Dueling Dragons, and it was two roller coasters, and they would run simultaneously, and it would look like you're going to crash into the other roller coaster at any time. And there was the fire roller coaster, and there was the ice roller coaster, and that's that's what you did. You rode, and you would get on the roller coaster, and you'd be like, Blue Dragon, you suck. Red Dragon, you suck. You would talk trash about the other. Game of Thrones. Yeah, it was very cool. It was great. It was great. Well, they tore it all down, and they built... Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. So what it is, it's a roller coaster. It doesn't even go upside down, but basically you're riding on his motorcycle from the movie, like from the from the story, right? He's got that rocket-powered motorcycle. Yeah. And it is, no exaggeration, the best roller coaster I have ever been on in my life. Whoa. It is so good. And it just it, they just did it really well. It's very immersive. It's They replaced the Dueling Dragons with this thing. Um, and just I, w- I don't want to give away any details of it because there is some really great like special surprises within it. But you basically, the roller coaster is you're on the motorcycle. You're not like strapped into a roller coaster type of thing. Like you are on a motorcycle and it feels like you're riding a motorcycle on these tracks. Cool. That must have been updated because that definitely wasn't there when I was there last. Yeah. It's brand new. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's brand new. It's like a two-hour wait. Like, you have to wait a long time to get on it, but it's totally worth it. Well, <laughs> just walking onto the into the Harry Potter world the first time, it feels like you're walking onto the movie set because of, like, how complete everything is. And it's just very cool, very cool place to be. So I, I love that. That's a cool recommendation. Yeah, it's totally worth it. All right, my recommendation is going to be a TV show. And speaking of the company we were just insulting, <laughs> but... <laughs> 
this is maybe not for everybody. There is this would be like a mature rating sort of thing. If it were a movie, it'd be rated R. There is definitely a lot of swearing, blood, and the small amounts of nudity, depiction of violence, and the the Holocaust. And this is the TV show Hunters on Amazon Prime. And so at the time that we're recording this, I'm a, about halfway through or so, but I just started a couple of days ago. And man, what like it's set up so well to just binge through it because it's it's so engaging. And it's just phenomenal. I just absolutely think this is a, a really, really great show. And I feel like Amazon has just been knocking it out of the park lately with great content. So anyway, this show is awesome. I'd highly recommend it if you're into that sort of thing. Essentially, if you don't know it, the conceit is mostly about a group of people who are hunting Nazis that have fled Germany. And I believe this is supposed to take place in either the 70s or I believe it's the 70s. I don't I it gave the the date but i didn't pay very close attention at the time <laughs> but yes i believe it, it, the setting very much looks like the 70s maybe the 80s maybe the 60s but it's a ways after world war ii where nazis have are still in the united states who were essentially nazis from germany and that there's a group of people who are hunting them down because of their war crimes and i'll leave it at that because there's actually quite a few reveals inside of this that i don't want to give away but i've been enjoying it so far and i think that if you're into that sort of thing you will too. All right. I love it. I love like Nazi hunter stuff. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that like Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite Quentin Tarantino films and just really good stuff. So yeah. Okay. Do you have anything else on the, what we've talked about so far, Shane? No, I think so far I'm not quite swayed on the idea of Montessori school, but I see some merit in what they're doing. So I'm excited to kind of dig into this further and see where it goes. Fair enough. All right. Well, next time we're going to talk more as we sort of left you on that cliffhanger there. We're going to talk more about the Montessori school benefits for individuals and children with intellectual disabilities such as autism or maybe lack thereof benefits. We'll also then really dig into a lot of the other research that exists and sort of provide a comparison of some other approaches to education and Montessori. So you can sort of see where there is overlap, sort of a Venn diagram thing, where they're different, where there's overlap. And then we'll leave you with our sort of final thoughts in our next episode. So join us next time for a wrap up of Montessori schooling and be part two in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for recording with me, Shane. Of course. You can leave your thoughts about Montessori schools. If you are in a Montessori school or you have a student or a child who attends one, or maybe you work there, we'd love to hear from any of you. Let us know what we got wrong, what we got right. And that's very possible. We will read it on air. Yep. So we will see you next time. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.